Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Peek, and welcome to episode 422 of Her, the podcast where, well, you're going to hear the truth about her mind, her life, her body, and her anxiety today. Oh, you've heard me talk about this before, but we got something new for you. All right. This is going to be such a great episode. Just know that it's made possible by our wonderful sponsor, Solaray Vitamins. You know how it goes, ladies. We're all trying to eat all the green things and, and all the colorful rainbow every day, and the whole thing goes to hell, right? Because you try, and then you know how they say it, woman makes plans, God laughs. So to be able to fill those gaps, we've got the multivitamin, the liposomal multivitamin for you. So please run on over to Solaray dot com and learn more about what you can do to fill in those gaps. Okay, now this is your very first reminder to hit iTunes after the episode and rate and review the show because my entire team just loves to hear from you. Your feedback is platinum. You know how that goes. Hmm. Okay, it's time for her. Her. The podcast. The naked truth about women. Her mind. Her body. Her life. It's all about her. I've talked about anxiety a lot in life, and especially as it relates to women, because as a physician, I know that it really hits women big time. Generalized anxiety disorder, and uh, we're just anxious little people. We don't worry. We pre-worry. We worry about not worrying enough. You know how ugly that this can be. So when I came across a beautiful piece that was written by our guest, Tracy Dennis Tawari, who is a PhD, professor of psychology and neuroscience, she wrote a book called Future Tense hmm, and Why Anxiety is Good for You. And then in parentheses, even though it feels bad. Okay. You got me at anxiety is good for you. So I said, that's it. We're reaching out. She's got to be on the show. So Dr. Tawari is director of the Emotion Regulation Lab and co-executive director of the Center for Health Technology at Hunter College. And that's where the mission is to connect researchers, community stakeholders, and technology innovators to bridge the healthcare gap. Phew, that's a mouthful. She's also founder and chief science officer of Arcade Therapeutics, Good for you for being an entrepreneur. She translates neuroscience and cognitive therapy techniques into, ooh, I love this part, gamified, clinically validated digital therapeutics for mental health. Oh my gosh, I love this. Tracy, welcome to the Her Podcast. Sam, it's so great to be with you. Thank you. And you've, you, you, you read the long version of that bio, so thank you for all those words. <laughs> I'm just exhausted. I mean, you know, I just... I don't even know how you have enough time to get oh, all this God, stuff we're done. done. Yeah, thank you. It was a great time. <laughs> well, you know, um, I'm in digital therapeutics as well. I'm the chief sci medical officer for a group in Boston, an MIT team that works with menopause. It's a thermal regulatory device that helps the hot flash and the rest of it. So I'm kind of thrown into digital therapeutics, and I just love the fact 
that you're also doing it and that you're really trying to bridge that gap between red hot science and then actual applications in the field, which I think is amazing. So my first question as I hold this amazing book in my hand is, why did you write it? Pam, a deep sense of failure drove me to write that book. Epic failure. <laughs> failure is the secret sauce for most success, isn't it? I love it. So I'm, I've been trained, I was trained as a clinical psychologist because I'm a researcher primarily. I retrained in cognitive neuroscience. I've been running an NIH funded lab for the past 20 years. And when I defended my dissertation, it was on September 11th, 2001. Nice. Yes, at 9 a.m. Nice. Yes. And so the world that I left, right, when I defended that dissertation and then came back to was changed forever. And as a New Yorker, I felt this very acutely. So my mission is like, okay, we have to beat back this crisis of mental health that we see now, like that's right front and center. So I put my head down for 20 years. And I did the research and I know that we have incredible, well-validated, efficacious treatments for anxiety disorders. I know we have medications that are effective for some people and helpful if used correctly. I know we have science-based wellness practice. I mean, all of that, I've been happy to be a part of that. But then about four or five years ago, I looked up from my nose to the grindstone and I just said, where, where are we with this mental health crisis? Where are we with anxiety disorders? They have been steadily on the rise despite these advances. So why isn't all this working? And so it was with this conundrum, with this real challenge to what I devoted my life to, it was out of that that I wrote this book. Wow. Okay. So then where along the line did you stumble upon the fact that anxiety is good for you? So, and this is really the crux of, I think, of what the message of my book is in a lot of ways which is that, you know, in addition to having those clinical training and neuroscience training, I'm an emotion scientist, really fundamentally. I study emotions. And all of us emotion scientists are Darwinians. We are very deeply entrenched in this idea that emotions evolved with humans to help us adapt and to help us survive and thrive. And here I am faced with something I've been studying for two decades, anxiety disorders. And I've started to realize, wait a second, we're completely conflating the emotion of anxiety, which we've evolved to have as a helpful ally with anxiety disorders. And that confusion, which many of us mental health professionals have not really corrected, it's that mindset and confusion that I think is a bottleneck in our ability to actually benefit from the incredible treatments that are out there. And I think it's making anxiety worse. Oh, ooh. Now, is there a gender specificity to this? Yeah, let's talk about women and anxiety. So we know, I mean, for decades and decades and decades, that women are twice as likely to be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. But that discrepancy only begins in puberty. So prior to that, young girls and boys express problematic anxiety at the same rates. And then puberty hits. And all of a sudden, and for the rest of our lives as women, our risk for developing an anxiety disorder is twice that of men. Now, of course, there are lots of people who've been interested in this disparity for a while. There's biological explanations, there's soci you know, sociocultural explanations, there's psychological explanations. It's clearly nature or nurture. But what interests me, because I'm fundamentally a cognitive and emotion scientist, is how our beliefs about emotions and, and vulnerable emotions like anxiety 
and the acceptability of those emotions in men versus women and in, and in people in general, that those differences are shaping how we're expressing some fundamental distress, our challenges, that messy work of being human. It's these factors, how we think and believe in our mindsets about these experiences that really shape how we're expressing all this. So for women, maybe we're over-detecting anxiety disorders and, you know, this whole idea that women are fragile and neurotic and they're little, you know, all these, these kinds of horrible old, old school cliches, they're out there. And we might be under-detecting anxiety disorders in men because men aren't supposed to be vulnerable still, even after all this progress that we've made. That's a big part, I think, of understanding where we are with anxiety right now is understanding some of those gender differences. I used to think that one of the reasons why women seem to be much more sensitive to this whole issue of anxiety per se is because we we literally have that sixth sense about our children and about child rearing. You, you can kind of tell, like, I'm, I don't feel really good right now. I think Johnny ran into a problem at the play yard about three miles away. How the hell do you know that? And then sure to form, many times it's actually true. It's like this, hmm. And, and I'm wondering if perhaps as the primary child rearers, as it were, I mean, evolutionarily, whether or not we were given this extra sensitivity, ergo the price to pay for anxiety, because we do do the child rearing, I mean, traditionally and all the rest of it, and we need to have that extra radar that extra sensitivity, that sense about it. Now, I'm probably full of junk on this one. No, I mean, I, I think it's spot on because there are two parts of that. One is that women, as the feminist movement has you know, progressed over what 100 years, 150 years, we want to have it all. That was the phrase that I grew up you know, as a second wave feminist knowing about. But what that really translates into is that we just have to do it all. So we have to be the perfect mother and the homekeeper and the working, it's like powerhouse in the boardroom. And, and so I think that one part of it of, is just what's expected of us in that sense of, of all these demands on us, which of course can increase anxiety. But the other part of what you said, which I love, is this idea that, you know what? Anxiety is actually a superpower. Anxiety is this way of being in the world where we have our radar out and we are doing it. And this is where I think the definition of anxiety is the emotion versus a disorder is important. So anxiety is this temporary feeling and set of thoughts that we get when we are time travelers in the future in our mind, when we're, when we're thinking about the future and we're anticipating that something could go wrong, but that a good outcome is still possible. So when we're anxious, we're running those what-if simulations in our mind, which all of us parents, and especially mom, right, we're always like, we're trying to hack this and second-guess that. We're running these simulations. Anxiety, it's in that space between where we are now and where we want to be. And anxiety is this powerful source of energy that helps us push ourselves through to work, to avert disaster, and make our dreams come true, and make sure everyone in our life is okay. And so the other side of anxiety is really hope and persistence and endurance. It's not, it's not despair. The flip side of anxiety is hope. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on that. <laughs> All right. You got me at hope. That's actually really heavy. When I think a lot of people, when they go down the rabbit hole of anxiety, the last thing on their mind is hope. Um, what they're thinking of is what you just said. It's despair, despondency, feeling helpless, hopeless, defeated, that whole thing. 
But actually, when you face the anxiety and you develop a strategy, you know, around it, like I'm so anxious about standing up in front of the thousand people and giving this one particular talk, do your homework, do the best you can, get some folk to help you, do some practice sessions, be as polished as you can, go out there and crush it. Just do it no matter what happens. And so there you have in the back of your mind, the hope that maybe this thing is really going to go much better than I think it is, but it takes work to do that. Oh my gosh. That was so, all of that was so spot on because that's why anxiety evolved with us humans. It evolved to help us say, okay, in these, first of all, it has to feel bad. It sucks, right? It feels terrible. It's on the spectrum, everything from like nervous butterflies to full-blown panic, excitement, positivity, negativity, but it doesn't feel good because it has to make us sit up and pay attention and think about, yeah, I have to give this talk. And now I'm leaving the present, right? It has to grab me by the collar. What am I going to do about this future that is uncertain? So really what anxiety evolved to do was not to handle threats, was not to handle bad stuff or despair. It evolved to help us handle uncertainty that fundamentally unknowable future where you're teetering on the edge of of victory or defeat. That's why anxiety is there, to power us through, to make us prepare, to tell us that we care because you're only anxious when you care. You're not anxious about things that don't matter. This is really fascinating. This is one of the things I really was, was intrigued with with the book. So how do you differentiate stress from anxiety? So stress is not an emotion. Stress is a calculation. It's this calculation that the demands that the world is throwing our way, whether or not we have the resources, internal and external, to meet those demands. And when there's an imbalance in that ratio, that's when we feel that kind of unpleasant stress. Underneath that umbrella of that calculation of, okay, I have to handle whatever, you know, what the world's throwing my way, those are where all the emotions are. So if you're stressed about your upcoming wedding planning, like, That's a lot of joy in that stress, as well as anxiety and all the other feelings. Sometimes there can be despair in that stress, like a lot of us felt during the pandemic. So that's one big difference that I think is important, because when we understand anxiety as an emotion, and from a Darwinian perspective, if I may say, because a third of Darwin's theory was about emotion. He counted it right up there with the ability to like develop a brain and, and, and like camouflage and all the things that we animals do. Emotions give us information and preparation about the world. That's what an emotion is. It tells us where we stand in relation to the universe and then what we need to do with that information to survive and thrive. The stress isn't quite that. That's why anxiety is such a useful bucket, (laughs) this useful little packet of information and energy and preparation, even though it feels bad. That's why I use that kind of contentious, controversial subtitle in my book, because I really want to have this discussion with people about how, although it feels like an enemy, we can work with it as a skill we can build to make it our ally. That's fascinating. You know, my years at the NIH were spent, go figure, in a stress lab, of course. So we were the ones who sequenced uh, CRH, you know, which is uh, the big guy, and spent a lot of times looking at this whole issue of stress as a very, very powerful physiologic response that the outcome of which is survival. So it's a fight and flight one way or the other. That's what you're going to do. You're going to fire up that amygdala and just get that baby rolling. At the same time, when all of that's happening and you are feeling, as it were, stressed out, 
in the fight and flight, there's also anxiety because it stirs up the emotion of anxiety. It's like, oh my God, you know, there's a lion coming my way. Or, you know, it turns out that the PowerPoint projector is no longer working and you have an hour and a half lecture in front of 500 people. Good freaking luck. It's that kind of thing. Can we talk science for a second? So since you're a biologist, here's the thing. We know that anxiety, that stress, it's not just fight flight. It's not just, you know, the HPA axis. It's not just, it's not like these things are happening in a vacuum, right? And we scientists ask questions that are biased. So when people study anxiety, they don't study the emotion, they study anxiety disorders, which are only diagnosed, not when you have a lot of anxiety, but when there's functional impairment, right? Where the ways you're coping with that feeling, right? it's actually, it's very independent of just levels of anxiety. I could be highly anxious all the time and never be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. Now, as scientists, especially in the past 10 years, have been asking more questions about the biological substrates of anxiety. We've moved past the threat detection response system, right? Now we're talking about, well, what's happening in the reward brain? What's happening with dopamine? Which, as we know, is not just sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's one of our nice little neurotransmitter shuttlecocks that allows areas of our brain from subcortical to, you know, the cortical limbic circuitry that we need when we're goal-directed. It helps them work more efficiently. Oh, what's happening to, you know, like oxytocin, the social bonding hormone? When you have moderate levels of anxiety, there's some new research, some of it animal, some of it human, that actually oxytocin increases, which isn't just about bonding in the moment like mother and child. It's also seeking out. It primes us to seek out social connection. Behaviorally, we look at research on creativity. And when we're anxious, moderately so, induced to be anxious, it's not shutting down creativity. In many instances, it's supercharging it. So there's a much more complex story of anxiety to tell of that and stress, because you know, allostatic load isn't, you know, is a process. You stress is a thing, positive, beneficial stress. This is not black and white, but this is the mea culpa with mental health professional being a mental health professional. We only communicate about it in these black and white language of despair and dysfunction kind of ways. Again, I mean, this is so eye-opening. And one of the reasons why I love talking to people like you, Tracy, is because you're on the not even the cutting edge, you're on the bleeding edge of neuroscience and its application with like everyday people. I've got a couple of things. One, so you're an athlete. Let's say you're a sprinter. It's the Olympics. You're in the block. And we've done a lot of studies. I'm on the board of the American College of Sports Medicine. So needless to say, we study this to death. And We've looked at stress hormone levels through the ceiling, and we've actually watched what happens, you know, with people like this. And so there I would see, and I'm a competitive athlete as well, so I'm going back to like, how do I feel? Before I begin something, when they shoot the gun off and off we go, I'm thinking, all right, in the back of my mind, you know, as a triathlete, Number one, I'm a little anxious about the swim because that's where everybody dies. I mean, they literally die. So if you're going to die, that's where you die. And two, you know, is my bike tire going to pop in the middle of, you know, whatever? And then the only thing I can feel good about is the damn run because <laughs> much of anything can happen there other than, you know, a hailstorm starts up. I've got all of this in the back of my mind, right? And I've got anxiety, but it's, you know what the, what I call it is? I call it anxiety that is functional because it keeps me on my tippy toes. 
I'm never one to go, oh, it's just another triathlon, whatever, and everything's going to be just fine. No, not really. I kind of like having that edge, you know, that says, hmm, stay on it, girlfriend, because you don't know what's going to happen. Life's full of little curveballs and whatever and back and forth. So I don't know. How would you characterize what I'm going through or any athlete goes through when they're kind of there? I love that. It's so such a perfect example of what I'm talking about because all of that is anxiety. But what great athletes learn, what performers learn. So I could talk, you know, I also used to be a musician in another life. And to this day, I actually have, you know, friends who are performers and they say exactly what you said. So say you have a Broadway performer about to do their big solo. If they're not throwing up in the bathroom beforehand, they're like, what's wrong? This is anxiety. And what people do who are in these intense situations over years and years, little by little, they've learned to ride that wave. So that when you ask an athlete, who is really at their peak, right, of performance. You ask that performers, uh, you ask them, what are you feeling? And they don't say anxious, they say excited. But it embodies, but it's actually anxiety. Our language does not allow, the way we talk about anxiety does not allow that this having an edge or this kind of complex feeling could be in this bin of anxiety, which we've decided is only dysfunction and despair. I love that. So basically it's been medicalized and pathologicalized or whatever. I always say I'm like a publicist for anxiety because I'm because I'm really trying hard to change this dialogue because you being an athlete, working with athletes, this is about mindset. That is a powerful world in these spaces because it's about, okay, how am I experiencing? What am I deciding this experience means to me? What are my perceptions and beliefs and assumptions? And given those, what do I do? You know, being a stress researcher, you've probably read about some of this really fascinating research coming out of lots of psychological labs, you know, in large part also neuroscience, but using things like the Trier social stress test, right? But it's a classic anxiety stressor because it's a performance demand where you're, you know, you need to give a public speech with no preparation in front of a panel of judges or do difficult math problems. So in some of these studies on mindset, they bring people who in who are diagnosed with anxiety disorders, like social anxiety disorder, where the key fear is that you'll humiliate yourself in front of someone, right? It's performance anxiety. And then they have them do the TSST, but then they instruct like half of a group in an experiment. They'll say, okay, listen, you're about to feel terrible. Your heart's gonna race. You're gonna feel like you have to throw up. But those butterflies in your stomach, that's adrenaline. That's like getting your body prepared. And your heart's racing because it's shooting oxygen to your brain so you can focus. And here's some science behind that. And here's what Darwin said. And they do these mindset interventions 20 minutes. And then, you know, they have a control group where they didn't give that information. And then what do you, you throw people into the deep end who've been debilitated by social anxiety for years in some cases. They perform better, their heart rates are lower, their blood pressure is lower. So their biological profile is of someone not falling apart, but someone who's actually engaged and focused and bringing it. So this is one tiny intervention. What if we did that over and over and over again? if we decided to tell a different story about how we're experiencing this hated emotion anxiety, I think we could make strides. I think we could engage and build skills and learn to ride that wave. So you've created a a new narrative and the bad rep of, you know, if you say you're anxious, you know, people kind of look at you askew, like, "Mm, what's wrong with you? And, you know, are you taking medications? What's going on? Versus, you know, I'm kind of stoked. 
course I'm anxious and, you know, I got stuff going on. I mean, I don't want the whole thing to go to hell either. But on the other hand, I'm not going to throw up in the, in the bathroom either. I'm simply going to say, you know something, I'm just going to do the best I can. I prepared, I've done what I can. It is what it is. And, and that's what we're going to do. Yeah. And sometimes I'm going to fail. And you know, it's really messy work being human. And sometimes I'm going to be ground down by this anxiety, but that doesn't mean I'm broken. It doesn't mean it's some cancer inside me to eradicate. It means that this is the work that I need to do to live my fullest life. And so that's the narrative. And I do want to acknowledge that anxiety disorders exist. Where I've devoted my life to trying to help study and remediate them. But the solution remains the same, whether you're in therapy for an anxiety disorder or if you're struggling with a day-to-day anxiety. You engage, right? You use that information, you prepare, and then you learn to let go of it. I call it the three L's, listen, leverage, and let go. No matter where you are in that spectrum, we have to engage with anxiety as, as if it can be useful information, because a lot of the time it is. It tells us what's going on. So we have to take that stance. I love the the three L's. Apply them in this situation. I had a a patient who was, she's had a long history of anxiety, not on any medications or anything like that. She's just a very anxious individual. And uh, so along comes COVID and you know where I'm going to go. So let's flash forward. We're done with mandates and the, you know, the whole thing, but there's that sneaking little hunch that maybe that person, you know, who's not wearing their mask is going to give you COVID or whatever, or should you be wearing a mask, even though no one else around you is now wearing it. And next thing you know, we're spiraling into a vicious cycle of worrying, pre-worrying, just what ifs and back and forth. So take your three L's and go for it. You gave me a tough one though, Pam. <laughs> Come on, I put you on the spot. No, I mean, no, no, but it's great because what I think with this example, what we see is that often these things have been developed, These when anxiety feels debilitating, it's not just overnight. These are things that are happening over time. And so we can feel really despondent and helpless because there's a lot to sort of tease apart there. But the thing with the three L's is that it's all about enacting. They're literally the steps to enact a new mindset about anxiety, put it into practice, and learn the skills that we need that all of us can use, whether we're in therapy or on our own, to actually learn to be anxious in the right way and use anxiety as an ally. So so in this example, you're talking about someone who's become very tuned in to worrying about their health. I know what happens to me every so often, sometimes more often than not, when something is really burdening me is I'll wake up at 4 a.m. with worries coursing through my brain, right? And it's just like, there I am, bing, I'd love to sleep three more hours, but that's not happening. So when you take this 3L approach, the very first thing you do when anxiety shows up is you're curious. Because usually what we say is, we hate this thing, we're going to avoid it and suppress it. We do everything we can to protect ourselves from it. But instead, we say, okay, I'm curious. Okay, what is on my mind? Right now, it's a it's a stew of yuckiness. And I usually just sweep it under the rug, but I'm going to tune in. I'm going to, I'm going to create a space between having the emotion and reacting to it. Maybe I'll breathe. Maybe I'll get out of bed and get somewhere where I can just sit quiet. Whatever it is, create some space. And what we often find is that those worries will rise to the surface. And then we need to give words to them. So we need to make them concrete. Sometimes we might, if it's not in the 
early hours of the morning, but it's in the middle of the day, set aside 15 minutes to just worry uncontrollably and just go for it, right? Everything down. Usually by 15 minutes, you can't worry anymore, which is a good feeling because you're like, there is an end to it, right? Because you just can't keep going. <laughs> right, but you're make you're tuning in, you're listening. Like this happened to me the other day. And what rose to the surface is that I had dropped this ball at work. I was just kind of trying to say, oh, it's going to be fine. And I just put it aside, but my brain was not letting me put it aside. And it was, it was there. And that was my information. It let me know, okay, this thing is really bothering me. In the case of your example, you know, I'm really worried about these health things. Let me write it down. What is it I'm worried about? Is it that I'm going to get COVID and die? Is it that I'm going to get COVID and give it to someone I love who could die? You know, is it that I just feel very vulnerable in the world right now and I can't afford to get sick and not be able to work? Put it down concretely. And then once we do that, we can start to figure out what about this situation that feels so bad can we control and what can't we? And as soon as we start to take that information and leverage it, the second L for preparation, what felt overwhelming, out of our control, terrible, even something as terrible as the pandemic, we can find those bright spots and those opportunities. And often what happens is there's an opportunity we didn't even know was there because we just didn't engage with these horrible feelings. But a lot of it's about tuning in, giving words, like spending time, and that's not easy. So maybe the first time we try that, it's not going to work so well. And we're going to be like, no, thank you. That's not for me. But if we try it a second time and a third time and a 10th time, we will get better at tolerating and experiencing these different, we'll abide with them and realize that maybe they're not out to get us. Maybe once in a while and a lot of the time even, they're actually there to give us more wisdom. And so all of a sudden, step by step, we start to just practice engaging with these horrible feeling emotions. They become like an ally we need to negotiate with. We see what the information is. We leverage it to take purposeful action. We figure out, oh, wait a second. I'm actually, it's not just that I'm anxious about work. It's that I hate my job. Maybe I actually need to find a new job. These are the kinds of realizations we can have. And then the third L, of course, is letting go. I am not saying we should be on a hamster wheel of constantly like simulating the future and trying to always hack it. We have to know and be agile, like a ninja, like an emotional ninja, knowing when to let go and come back to the present. And that takes practice too. And it can only happen after we've listened and leveraged. Because usually we start there. You know, we just try to like make it go away. But now when we're letting go, we're finding things that give us a sense of flow, of purpose, of joy. If you're an athlete, I think that's where a lot of athletes find their flow and joy, right? Maybe you're a meditator. Awesome. Meditation's too hard for some people. Maybe you like yoga or maybe you like writing bad poetry like I do. Like I just love writing poetry. I don't judge myself. I just flow of consciousness. You know, we all have our things. Dacher Keltner wrote a beautiful book recently about awe and how we find awe not just in nature. And in the book, he also reports on some data that he'd gathered about how actually the place that we find on average, the most awe in our life is on achievements and character of other people, people who are humble, who self-sacrifice, who do incredible things. That's where awe is. So we can find it all the time. And I'm telling you, that's how we can let go of that future hamster wheel, future tense and rejuvenate, you know, so many ways. So we have to practice that too. So in that situation with your, with your patient or your client, like that's really an opportunity to say, you know, you've done incredible work. You've listened, you've tried to leverage. It doesn't always work, or maybe it did work. What are you going to do now for self-care? 
and connect with others, connect with yourself, connect with purpose. What can you do? And that's where we can actually do a lot of work just on our own. It's not rocket science. So I love this. And you mentioned the M word, that's meditation. I'm a firm believer that it is exquisitely effective. But in the moment when suddenly, you know, there's a rise of anxiety inside, the last thing many people think about is I'm going to go to the corner and just do, you know, like 20 minutes. No, that's not happening. But what I can tell you, and this works like a charm, is you're not aware physiologically of what's happening with you. Watch your breath. It's become staccato. (laughs) You know, I'm so excited. Oh my God, I'm anxious. It's like all these things, right? And so your breath picks up. You're not getting full volume of oxygen in your lungs. And what you can do to just allow yourself, and as a neuroscience, you know what where this is going. So if you affect the breathing center, as it were, in the brainstem, what you do is you allow yourself to calm down. There's a, there's a calming effect and there's a release of endorphins and the rest of it. If you just simply practice some very straightforward breathing techniques, and these breathing techniques I mean, there's a whole variety of them, you know, breathe in for four, hold for eight, breathe out for four, you know, you could play it any way you want to, but what it does is when you, when you're mindful of your breath, it allows you to just calm down a little enough so that maybe you could start seeing these other things, how I can leverage this, how I can strategize this, how I can confront this, how I can make all of this work for me. And I think that that's really important too. So I think in the toolbox, that's great. And for meditation, I see it as foundational. So some kind of meditative something. So you do rotten poetry, what I'll do is I'll go outdoors. I'm an outdoors crazy person. And so I'll take my beloved German shepherds out with me for a four to five miler just to work it off. And it feels so soothing and wonderful. And I've become quite creative during that time. Brain derived neurotropic factor is cranking up. I'm feeling good. My cognitive abilities pick up. All of that comes yet. Why? Because of one little go-to, a ritual that I've used for years. Now, other people may just, you know, like hit their yoga mat immediately. And I say, more power to you. I don't care what you do, so long as it's beneficial and not self-destructive. I mean, you know, lighting up a cigarette or shooting up some drugs is not the way to go. Yeah, that's like, no. But people know, people know these things. And I think sometimes people feel disempowered, like they just have to go to all the 5 million experts out there. And But we have a lot of that wisdom. And I love what you said about breathing and coming down because the, this 3L, it's kind of cyclical, right? Because because you need to be able to come back to the present and you know use your breath to create space between the emotion and reacting to it. How can you listen to anything? if you're up here. So I just love that point you're making about that. Well, thank you. And and it's just something, I mean, you know, been there, done that so many times. I think I've knocked around the world long enough to figure that one out. But there's also one last little piece, and it might be a fourth L, and that is love. And the love part of this, I'm just throwing it out there, is more self-love in many respects. Now, when I say that, I don't mean some kind of narcissistic weirdness. What I mean 
is self-compassion. And so many times what I'll do is I'll start up a little kind of self-dialogue to myself, like, okay, listen, things didn't go quite the way you thought, or, oh my gosh, you know, you've got this anxiety provoking something that's going to be, you know, coming up. What I love to do is I love to take my left hand, place it over my heart, and then I take my right hand and place it over my left. And then what I've got is I've got self-compassion. It reminds me I'm holding on to my heart and I'm saying, look, we're going to get through this. The only way out of this is through it. Thank you, Robert Frost. But to show great compassion, because, you know, I mean, between you and me, after having spent a lifetime working with, you know, in women's health, women are so rotten to themselves. They're so tough on themselves. I'm sure you've had it with yourself. I've had it with myself. We just go to this self-blame place like, you know, you should never have been in this. We should all over ourselves. You should have already known that this was a rotten. We're all recovering perfectionists or perfectionists. There's no upside to perfectionism. No, they're, they're just, no, it's paralysis in P equals P. And so that gets in the way too. And we have to kind of be very careful about self-compassion and no potty mouth on yourself, you know, calling yourselves names and, you know, I'm an idiot and all this stuff. No, stop that stuff. Instead, calm down, get the breathing going, do the little self-compassion moment, and then really start using the three L's that you just described, which helps someone begin to see this in a different light and see hope. And I just love that. I think you're right. That's the starting point. I sort of have wrapped in L, the love, as part of like, we get social connection and that's what anchors us again. So I sort of kind of ranked it there with meditation, all those other things. But I like what you're saying, that it's almost this starting point that before we can do anything, even attempt to listen to anxiety, we have to affirm that. Anytime we feel overwhelmed, and here's another, <laughs> I don't know why I keep on saying these multiple letters, but I also have three Ps. <laughs> all right, go ahead. Which is whenever we feel overwhelmed, we need to do a check on our three Ps, which are how are we with people? Are we giving love and receiving love in a way that's fulfilling, right? So how are we and giving love to ourselves, you know, so people, perspective. And this is where the kind of mindset things like, how are we thinking about our perspective? And then purpose. Like, are we hitched and anchored to something that's greater than ourselves? Because if we just have our head down like this and are only looking at here's the amount of money or here's the this or here's the amount of likes I have on my social media thing or we're going to be miserable. There's no second word about it. So we have to be able to look at something, whether it's spiritual or whether it's mission or whether it's just cooking a great dinner for our family that night, whatever it is, I think that purpose is also a good check-in. And I'm going to add that fourth L. It has to be, it has to precede everything. I really love that. I'm honored and I'm humbled. And the reason why is, look, this comes from years, years and years of kicking around with this stuff. And what I find is that women need to give themselves permission to proceed forward with taking care of themselves. And usually they have to first cut through with a machete in hand, cut through a dense forest of shame, blame, and guilt. You should never have been in this mess. And for how, what were you thinking, you know, and, and back and forth, it's like, stop it already. And then just get through that little forest and, and then say to yourself, 
I'm going to do the best I can. I'm an okay person. I'm a good person. And I'm going to feel compassion and forgiveness for myself. Now I'm going to launch into those three L's because now I'm in the headset to do it. 100%. And you know, this also reminds me of this beautiful kind of the light side to the dark side of perfectionism, which is this idea of excellencism. I think we women are so socialized to be little Miss Perfects. And for all, all these blame and shame things that you're talking about, it just feels like it's baked into how girls are raised, not just past generations, but now. And what excellencism is this idea that, you know what, when you're holding yourself to this standard of flawlessness, that perfectionism, you're going to be less efficient, less productive. You're going to, you'll be more at risk for anxiety disorders and depression and suicidality. There's no upside, but excellencism is the belief that, you know what? I can do excellent work. Sometimes it's just going to be good enough. It's not going to be even close to perfect, but it still has value. And I have to make mistakes along the way to get there. I need to fail in order to get to that excellent. And I have it in me to do all of that. And when you do all of a sudden, I think that's when we become real powerhouses. When we really know that, you know, as Edison said, I haven't failed a thousand times. I've just found a thousand ways that don't work. Oh, yeah. There's no question about that. And I think putting that into perspective is so spectacular. There was a quote that I just actually used the other day. Here it is. A hungry stomach, an empty wallet, and a broken heart can teach you the best lessons of life. That was Robin Williams. When he said that many years ago, I literally wrote it down because it's true. So I wish upon all of you out there on the Her Podcast land, epic fails, epic triumphs, and a hell of a lot of life lessons. There's just no question about it. I could end up sitting here talking to you for hours. If I don't stop now, then we will be talking. For <laughs> we'll never stop. Okay, <laughs> Everyone out there on the Her Podcast land, I have been talking and having the pleasure of talking with Dr. Tracy Dennis Tawari, and she is the author of the new book, Future Tense, Why Anxiety is Good for You Even Though It Feels Bad. Please grab this book because if you're like me and, and most women, if you own a set of ovaries, you've got a problem with anxiety, I can guarantee you, that you know, reframe it now. Because this can actually be, as we've already talked about, a real powerhouse here, to say the least. Run on over to her website, which is dr, as in doctor, Tracy, T-R-A-C-Y-P-H-D dot com. And learn more about her wonderful work. Tracy, all I can tell you is that this was a robust discussion about something that is near and dear to my heart. And I can't thank you for sharing your amazing wisdom with us. Thank you, Tracy. Oh, Pam, thank you so much. What an honor to speak with you. And thank you for that fourth L. I will put it to good use. Okay. Just remember, it's spelled Dr. Pam, P-E-E-K-E. -E -E. Just kidding. The joke with my name is it's so butchered, you know, most of the time. And I want to give another shout out to our wonderful sponsor, Solaray Vitamins, S-O-L-A-R-A-Y. Run on over to solaray.com. I'm popping my multivite now because I know I need to do that little gap filling. You know how it goes, ladies. Ah. Uh, well, this is wonderful. So now run on over to iTunes, everyone. Rate and review the show because I'm waiting to hear from you. That's what I'm doing. Twiddling my thumbs along with my entire team. 
Oh, I'm Dr. Pam Peek, host of the Herb Podcast. Follow me on Facebook at Dr. Pam Peek or Twitter and Instagram at Pam Peek MD. And remember to catch every single episode of the Herb Podcast on iTunes, Radio MD, Spotify, all the other platforms. You know how it goes by now. Listen, thanks for being here with us, listening along and enjoying every single moment. Take care and stay safe.